Now, today we're going to be talking about the beginnings of what I'm calling middle class reform. I'm going to be talking a, a good amount about uh, the middle class and what it is in the United States or what it became uh, in the United States in the 1830s. And also talking about the three major reform movements that came out of the growth of the new American middle class, I'm talking about the 1930s, uh, the 1830s, sorry, uh, temperance, women's rights, and uh, the anti-slavery impulse. Now, Walt Whitman once said that the most valuable class in any community is the middle class. And he probably was right. Uh, a major indication of the health of a society is the size and the strength of the middle class. Much of the entrepreneurship uh, 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 and creative talent in a society comes from the middle class. Yet, most American historians, at least in my view, spend very little time with the American middle class. They are more interested in elites, uh, in the working class, uh, in the poor. Uh, the middle class are not glamorous. They're not dramatic like elites or the working class or the poor. Uh, I think this also reflects some of the ideological biases of some historians. Surprisingly little has been written about the middle class in America, despite its great numbers. I mean, most uh, Americans today, probably about 70%, uh, either are considered or consider themselves uh, middle class. Uh, both presidential candidates, as you may have noticed, refer to the middle class over and over and over again, of course, without defining it. And despite the fact that much historical change has emanated from the middle class, uh, most American historians don't seem to be very interested in it. But I will try to rectify this a bit today and explain how a new American middle class was at the forefront of the major reform movements of the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s, which, as I said earlier, were temperance, anti-slavery, and women's rights. Now, let me mention another paradox involving the uh, American middle class. Today, the American middle class is considered rather conservative. But during the 1830s, the American middle class was at the forefront of movements which were considered to be radical. And certainly, anti-slavery, women's rights, and to some extent, even temperance was considered to be radical. Yet, at the same time, middle class culture was conservative. So the middle class is, at the same time, politically radical, yet culturally conservative. Radical and conservative at the same time. And I'll try to explain this apparent paradox as well today. So to begin, I should explain how this new middle class in America in the 1830s and beyond came to be. But before that, I should explain what I mean by middle class. Now, you can explain or define middle class in a lot of different ways. The first and most obvious way is to define it in economic terms. Those people in a society who are neither rich nor poor, who generally do not work with their hands but with their minds, who own businesses or maybe work for larger businesses, who wear what we would call white collars and not blue collars. And perhaps most importantly, those who identify consciously as part of the middle class, 
In the United States, I've always believed that people are essentially in a class if they think they are in a class. They are who they want to be. And of course, the whole idea of middle class as relating to upper and lower class is relative. So you might find different uh, kinds of middle classes defined differently in different countries. Now, this last point that I make, uh, that, I, that, I, that I just made about people being who they want to be in America, also points to the cultural aspect of being middle class, the construction of a distinct culture, way of life, of a value system, to go with one's economic status. And we will see how the American middle class developed such a distinct cultural identity as well as economic in the 1830s and beyond. So, how was this new middle class uh, uh, in the United States, which I've been referring to in the 1830s, how was it created? Well, the creation of the new middle class in the 1830s was actually the product of many of the trends that we have already spoken about. First and foremost, it was a product of the market revolution, which we talked about. Uh, the market revolution created a class of small businessmen, of merchants, of middlemen, middlemen, uh, 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 commercial farmers, farmers who were involved in the market, as well as people who worked for larger businesses, people who were orient toward, oriented towards making money, much more so than before. Making money in this economy took discipline and rationality. Orders had to be filled. Work had to be done on time. So the market revolution was one major factor in creating this new middle class. A second factor, we've talked about this as well, the transportation and technological revolution, which goes along with the market revolution. Canals, railroads, paved roads allowed markets to grow and thus businesses to grow. Technological innovations, especially the water-powered mill, remember Samuel Slater, Lowell, Lawrence, this allowed more rationalized production and more production, also helping form the middle class. Another aspect, again we've talked about this, the end of patriarchy, again related to the market revolution with men no longer reliant on their fathers, the new generation of the 1830s and beyond could structure their lives in their own way and structure work and family in their own way, again, creating a new middle class. Then there was the separation of work and the home. It's again related to the market revolution. By the 1830s, most men were going outside their homes to work in offices, businesses, uh, merchants, commercial firms. Now, women no longer worked alongside their husbands as they had done before the market revolution. They were no longer income producers. They stayed home while their husbands worked outside the home and became responsible for the moral aspect of the home, the moral instruction of children, as well as household duties and the comfort of their husbands. This is what became known as the separate spheres or the cult of domesticity. Also helping to create this new American middle class in the 1830s was the rise of the private home or privacy in the home. 
Now, with the market revolution, a new style of family and home life began to arise, a private home. Middle-class men would finish their work days and come home to their families at the end. There was no going out to bars or taverns or hanging out with friends. The doors were shut, so to speak. There was now what we today would call a nuclear family, in which there was room only for the father, the mother, and their children. Cocooning might be the word for it today. There was the idea that whatever happened in the home was private. It was walled off from the outside. And this meant, in effect, the decline of republicanism, another concept that I referred to earlier. In republicanism, the doors of the home were open, so to speak. Uh, Under republicanism, men were public beings. They lived in public. They had public duties. Remember the idea of virtue. That's a public duty, not a private one. Under republicanism, men had obligations to the community and to the group. But now, there were fewer obligations to the group under the new market economy as this new middle class began to, to form, and more obligations to oneself and especially one's nuclear family. So that's another reason why the uh, new middle class is forming. Then there was the impact of the religious revivals. This also created this new American middle class. Now, beginning in the 1820s, there were a huge number of religious revivals across America. Uh, These were known collectively as the Second Great Awakening. Uh, uh, The First Great Awakening took place in the uh, 1700s, in the 18th century. But this Second Great Awakening is uh, is now in the 1820s, 1830s. The most famous preacher of the the Second Great Awakening was a man by the name of Charles Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y. Now, these revivals were Protestant revivals, not Catholic revivals, Protestant, in which men and women rededicated themselves to God and promised personally to eradicate sin from their lives. Now, what did this mean? Well, largely this meant controlling what were known then as their base passions. Drinking, adultery, uh, violence towards women, even overeating. These revivalists rededicated themselves to controlling these kinds of base base passions in an atmosphere of self-denial. The goal was perfection here on earth, not in the next life, probably in the next life too, but starting here on earth. And this, of course, would require self-sacrifice. And finally, the uh, rise of the Whig Party, which we also talked about, was also directly related to the rise of the American middle class in the 1830s. The Whig Party was the right vehicle for a middle class in America that was perfectionist, family-oriented, private, and capitalist. The Whig Party was really a function of the creation of this new American middle class. It served as its constituency. The Whig Party reflected the concerns, the mindset, and the aspirations of the middle class. And the Whigs were truly the middle class party. So thus, it was the market revolution and many of its related aspects that all came together to form the new American middle class by the 1830s. Now, since we've already said that a class is more than just an economic status, and there is usually a culture that goes along with that economic status, 
what was the culture of the American middle class in the 1830s and beyond? Well, it was a number of things, but I think it can be summed up in one word, and that word is respectability. Respectability. Now, what is respectability? Well, respectability takes in a host of middle-class cultural attributes, some of which we've already alluded to. Self-control, self-denial, responsibility, specifically no drinking. Another aspect, privacy. We've mentioned that as well. If you're respectable in the 1830s, you don't engage in vulgar public displays. For instance, that Andrew Jackson inauguration scene in March 1829 that I mentioned a couple of lectures ago. The private, walled-off home to which they retreated at the end of another money-making day, if you're the middle class, that's where the scenes, if there were any, were to, be, were to take place. Uh, outsiders were not to see them. What you did with your family was private. You didn't do it in the street. You didn't do it in public. You did it in the private home. Then there was the idea of individuality. Uh, uh, the idea that you were loyal to yourself and your family uh, 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 more than you were loyal to the community. And I pointed this out. You know, This is related to the decline of uh, republicanism. Uh, 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 you know, uh, that's what respectable people do. They take care uh, of, their, of their families. Another aspect of respectability, domesticity, uh, where mothers remained in the home giving moral instruction while they're uh, uh, husbands were at work. In other words, there's a separation of home and work. Now, note that this is a change from the old-style patriarchal family that, uh, uh, that, 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 uh, that prevailed in the United States basically until the early part of the 19th century, in which the man was always around. He might be working in a shop that's connected to the home. He might be uh, working in the fields, of, you know, right outside the farmhouse. Uh, but he's around, and he is the moral arbiter, not the woman. It changes by the 1830s because the man is away working, uh, the woman is in the home, and she's the moral arbiter. So, in a sense, there's more space for women in domesticity, since they do have a delineated sphere, the home, where they are in charge. But, of course, it's limiting at the same time because, largely, they could not go beyond that sphere. They're trapped in the home. Now, respectability also meant a celebration of the market, of free enterprise and its culture. It emphasized work and patience, competition, the idea that the best people, the most deserving people, the hardest working people, the smartest people were rewarded. And this, of course, relates to what we call the Protestant ethic, a religious idea that became transformed into an economic idea and the driving idea behind American capitalism, the idea that success is good and a sign of God's favor. Now, respectability also meant not just the separation of man and wife or husband and wife, home and at work, but also the separation of employer and employee. Now, before the market revolution, before the 1830s and the rise of this new middle class, there was much more camaraderie between the boss and the worker, uh, much less separation between the two. They would often socialize together. They would drink together after work. They were 
much more personally friendly because the establishments, the businesses themselves, were smaller. There were more one-on-one relationships. But the new middle-class work culture of the, 19, of the 1830s, created by the market revolution, changed all of this. With businesses expanding, bosses uh, no longer uh, knew all their employees personally. There were just too many of them. With money of the essence, bosses didn't have the time to drink or to hang out with their employees. They needed to get the work out. So there was no wasting time anymore. Everything's on the clock. There's a new culture in the 1830s of efficiency and an emphasis on personal responsibility from from the workers, personal reliability. You had to show up at 9, you had to stay till 5, and you had to work in between those times. And after work ended, the middle-class boss would go right home to his family while the working-class employee would probably go out and drink, not this time with his boss, but with other workers. So you see a class culture, a middle-class culture, and a working-class culture forming in America, a split and a division between the bosses and the bossed, and the start of a sharp class divide uh, 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 rooted largely in culture as much as economics between the working class and the middle class. And the last element of what I call respectability is moral sanctimony. The idea of moral uplift and moral perfectibility implies trying to perfect others besides yourself. And who else to uplift, as far as the middle class was concerned, but their employees, the working class. And so the middle class culture of respectability became known for its effort to teach the working class how to behave. And the inevitable result of this was sanctimony and self-righteousness. The working class, already angry over losing their Republican independence and sinking into permanent low-paid employee status. You know, the working class was hurt, not helped, by the market revolution, as the middle class was helped by it. The working class was not pleased on top of uh, these economic reverses to also be told what to do by the middle class. And they emphatically told the middle class, in so many words, to leave them alone, to butt out of their lives. And how do they do this? Well, the working class did this through forming their own separate working class culture, which featured, among other things, sometimes heavy drinking, sometimes only uh, if, if, as, as if almost despite the middle class, heavy drinking. What the middle class would consider vulgar amusements like boxing and cockfighting and minstrel shows. Also, dime novels, reading these dime novels with adventure stories, sensationalist newspapers, as opposed to the separate middle-class written culture of novels that instructed the readers in morality. You know, the, what, what, what is known as sentimental literature with uh, morally uplifting themes. Uh, 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 middle-class women read and uh, uh, wrote uh, these, these, uh, these, these sentimental literature uh, in, in, in a great volume uh, you know, during this time. If you want to compare the middle-class and 
working class culture. Uh, uh, the, the way I would describe it, it would be like either reading the National Enquirer or reading the New York Times. I mean, there are different kinds of people who read uh, those kinds of publications. So, by the 1830s, not only were there separate middle class and working classes generally, but separate middle class and working class cultures as well to go with them. The middle class culture was a culture of work discipline. The working class culture was a culture of work independence. The middle class culture was a culture of domestic privacy. The working class culture was much more in the street, much more public, fraternalism in the community. And the middle class culture emphasized self-control above everything. The working class culture emphasized freedom. Now, we take these cultural differences uh, uh, between middle class and working class Americans for granted today. Uh, when we say someone is from the other side of the track, so to speak, or an expression like that, we're actually acknowledging the existence of competing working class and middle class cultures and behaviors. If you want to know where it came from, if you want to know where that came from, it had its genesis in the 1830s. Now, the logical consequences of middle class formation and middle class culture during this period were middle class attempts at reform. And we'll talk about three aspects of that. First, temperance. Now, by the 1820s, drinking in America uh, was at an all-time high. So in 1826, a group of evangelicals, preachers, uh, active in the Second Great Awakening formed the American Temperance Society. Now, temperance fit in perfectly with the middle-class culture of respectability. In fact, above any other trait, I think it was the symbol of middle-class respectability and the symbol of what distinguished the middle class from the working class. Second Great Awakening leaders like Charles Finney made temperance a prerequisite for being saved. And by 1835, there were one and a half million members in the American Temperance Society. Uh, by 1840, they had started to have an effect. Uh, alcohol consumption in America had dropped by half. Uh, by 1850, it had halved again. Most of this was due to middle class and not working class abstinence. Many in the working uh, middle class became completely abstinent and pressured their peers and with much less success, their working class employees and underlings, to do so as well. Now, the reason for temperance was not just cultural for the middle class, it was also economic, because workers needed to be disciplined or have discipline at work in the new market culture. So their employees, the working class employees, were taking money out of the middle class pocket when they got drunk because they couldn't work. And if the working class wouldn't abstain voluntarily, the middle class would legislate it for them. By the 1850s, 17 states had passed prohibition laws. Now, by the 1850s, temperance was largely a middle class Protestant response to drinking by working class Catholics, meaning mainly immigrants from Ireland and Germany, who began arriving in great numbers uh, in the United States starting in the late 1840s. And it continued well into the 20th century to be a symbol of the divide between middle class and working class culture in America. 
Uh, drinking is really the divide, with a meaning that goes well beyond the specifics and its particulars. Temperance is a symbolic way for the middle class and working class in America to lash out at each other. For the middle class, temperance was a symbol of their respectability and their acceptance of a market culture. For the working class, drinking was a symbol of their defiance of the market culture that had destroyed their independence, destroyed their republicanism. Here, at least, in the area of drinking, the middle class couldn't tell them what to do, although they tried. Thus, in the words of historian Paul Johnson, who, uh, who, uh, uh, who wrote the portion of the text that we're reading uh, right now, alcohol, which once had been, quote, an ancient bond between classes, had become, by the 1830s, an angry badge of working class status. And once again, if we want to see how and when this kind of culture war between working class and middle class Americans, between Catholic and Protestant Americans, where it started, we can look to the 1830s. Now, anti-slavery. Second and probably most important aspect of middle class reform. Here, the impetus comes from New England, and specifically from the Whigs, who had been influenced by the Second Great Awakening revivals uh, and their egalitarianism. In 1831, a Boston minister named William Lloyd Garrison uh, uh, guess he didn't like it. A Boston minister named William Lloyd Garrison formed the American Anti-Slavery Society. Now, unlike many anti-slavery men before him who preached gradual uh, abolition of slavery, compensated abolition where the slave owners would get paid, uh, aboli ab abolitionism and colonization, uh, uh, shipping the former slaves uh, uh, back to Africa, as was the case in the Liberian experiment uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the 1820s. Garrison demanded immediate abolition, uncompensated abolition, and full citizenship rights, meaning voting rights, for the freed slaves. The first issue of William Lloyd Garrison's anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, which was published in 1831, set his uncompromising tone. I am in earnest, he wrote. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Well, most middle-class opponents of slavery in the 1830s and beyond were not as radical as William Lloyd Garrison and rejected his idea of inherent equality between the races. They were nonetheless revolted by the brutality uh, and what they considered to be the immorality of slavery as an institution. And this is to be expected. Certainly a middle-class culture, which is based on domesticity, where kindly mothers gave moral instruction to children, could not help but be appalled at an institution like slavery, where children could be sold from their mothers, where they could be whipped, uh, uh, which featured rape and physical abuse of women. It was no coincidence that anti-slavery sentiment was very high among middle-class women, and that the most powerful anti-slavery novel ever written 
Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was published in 1852, was uh, authored by a middle-class woman, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, at the time uh, it was published, or right after it was published, in the 1850s, Uncle Tom's Cabin was the largest-selling uh, book in history. Only the Bible sold more. And certainly a middle-class culture, which was based on the virtues of hard work and self-denial and individual responsibility, where men were proud to stand on their own two feet, could not help but be appalled at a slaveholding society where some men became rich on the backs of others. And it was no coincidence again that the major theme of male opponents of slavery would be the free labor idea, the idea of the dignity of work and the ability of hard-working men to rise in society. We'll spend next Wednesday's class talking about this powerful idea of free labor. Thus, if some middle-class whites believed that blacks were inherently inferior, even so, the logic of their own culture pushed them in the direction of anti-slavery. If one believed in moral uplift, in responsibility, in temperance, in respectability, then one believed that slavery had to end. While the anti-slavery movement made little headway in the 1830s, uh, failing in a postal campaign in the South when Southern postmasters uh, censured, uh, uh, censored mass-mailed uh, anti-slavery tracts so they never reached their recipients, and failing to bring anti-slavery petitions to the floor of Congress thanks to a Democratic Party-endorsed gag rule, the anti-slavery movement, of course, would find greater success in the 1840s as the question of slavery in the territories was pushed to the front burner of American politics by the Mexican War, and even more so uh, 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 in the uh, 1850s as slavery became the defining national, political, and for many, moral issue in the nation. And finally, the uh, issue of women's rights uh, was a, uh, and the women's rights movement was a direct outgrowth of the anti-slavery movement among American women, American middle-class women again. Now, women could not have missed the language of equality based on the Declaration of Independence uh, of the anti-slavery movement. Women who had at least partially moved into the public sphere through anti-slavery, and, uh, and, and some women did. They managed to get out of the home uh, and become public spokes, spokeswomen uh, uh, by fighting against slavery. Well, women now decided to attempt to stay in that public sphere uh, and demand equal women's rights as a natural corollary of abolitionism. In 1848 a group of women met in Seneca Falls, New York, upstate New York, to pass their own version of the Declaration of Independence. Led by, among others, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they adopted a declaration, which we read for today, that stated that all men and women are created equal. They stated... The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of men towards women, having in direct object the establishment of a direct tyranny over her. Now these were very tough words for their time. 
the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848 demanded property rights that were equal between women and men, expanded educational opportunities for women, more legal rights for women within their marriages, and most importantly, the right to vote. Now, of the three major middle-class reform movements, uh, women's rights made the least headway uh, in America, at least initially. Middle-class males who abhorred slavery and were revolted by drinking still drew the line when the issue was women breaking out of the confines of the home, the confines of domesticity, into the public realm, which most men thought belonged exclusively to them. It would, of course, take until 1920, long after the delegates to the Seneca Falls Convention uh, were dead, for women to achieve to write the right to vote on the national level. And many years after that, for women to assume an independent role in the public sphere, even somewhat commensurate with men. But women's rights belongs with temperance and anti-slavery as the prime expressions of the middle-class reform impulse in America during the first half of the 20th century. All three of these reform movements said a great deal about the culture of the increasingly powerful and influential American middle class, a class that through these cutting-edge issues would now take a place on the national, political, economic, and social scene that it would never relinquish. And that middle class's often hostile relationship with a much more historically studied class, the American working class, would drive much of American history through the rest of the 19th century and on into the 20th. Uh, if you want to explain American history uh, throughout much of the 19th century uh, and, and well into the 20th century before we all became middle class or all identified as middle class, you can do so by, by, by viewing the rivalry and the conflict between the American middle class and the American working class.